so, you know, when we would go out for a run, we'd look at the kitchen clock and we'd go, it's five to six. And then we would go for our run and we would come back in and we would go, oh, it's five past seven. Yeah. What time did we leave again? Was it five to six or five past six? Can't remember. Okay, so, you know. Yeah. So it was really, really inaccurate and it didn't really matter. But what mattered was how the run felt. And there is a zone that you can get into and it's sort of like you hit the sweet spot. And that sweet spot is when you've got the ATP renewable battery, you know, just going and, and you feel like you can go forever. And it's effortless and it has a wonderful feeling quality. Well, so what I see is a lot of people have lost that feeling quality. And they're always trying to hit a time that's pre-subscribed from somebody else. It's somebody else's idea of where you're supposed to be at this certain sort of time. And uh, they, they forget that it's a synthesis of so many things within your body that enables the whole thing to fire up and, and for you to get that wonderful feeling. So if people concentrated more on, on uh, getting that, that great feeling, and stop worrying so much about what number they're going to put down in their training diary or nobody has training diary anymore, they're going to put on Strava or whatever it is, you know. Um, and the thing is that uh, it becomes a very um, outside-in approach instead of an inside-out approach. So we're then trying to fit ourselves to fit somebody else's version of what a good runner is supposed to be or what good training is supposed to look like. And it doesn't work that way. It's not linear. You know, we, we put it in this linear brain of ours and we think, okay, well, you know, I'm going to increase 10% a week or, you know, I'm going to hit this pace and it's going to be 10% faster than the pace I did the week before and all the rest. But um, it's all uh, ask about face, if you ask me. Welcome to the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced runner and running physiotherapist. I created this podcast not only so I had an excuse to talk running each and every week, something that I love to do, but more importantly, this podcast gives me the opportunity to interview fellow runners, friends and health professionals in a relaxed and easygoing format. This podcast is designed for the everyday runner, so we can all live, learn, grow, and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Run Culture Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Lorraine Moller. Lorraine is a four-time Olympian, Olympic bronze medalist from the marathon in the 92 Barcelona Olympic Games, world track and field finalist, multiple Commonwealth Games track and field medalist, and winner of 16 major international marathons. She was a pioneer in bringing about equality in women's athletics and sport, and she is the president of the Lydiard Foundation, which she co-founded in 2006. She wrote a personal memoir titled On the Wings of Mercury in 2008, and she hails from Boulder, Colorado. Welcome to the podcast, Lorraine. Thank you very much, Dane. Oh, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, 
I really wanted to, I've listened to a few um, podcasts now with you and uh, yeah, I, I was fascinated by your amazing career and how long it was and, and about the Lydiard training philosophy. And I've also learned a lot listening to you about your fantastic sense of self and uh, fant fantastic intuition. Uh, but I, I wanted to first start the podcast by uh, yeah, ha harping back to your childhood and how you first got back in, how you got into running and how you felt like your childhood experiences perhaps shaped the person you became today. Wow, well, that's a biggie. Uh, so, well, let's start going back. Uh, I'll, I'll give you just a little framework that, within which I operate. And I believe what Shakespeare said, that all the, words, all the world's a stage and we are actors and actresses. Uh, we have our entrances and exits. And that this world stage is here for us to learn about ourselves. And that there is nothing else in this journey that when we come in and we go out the other end, uh, that th throughout that journey, there is a life of uh, perhaps uh, rightness or uh, what is fulfilling. I do believe that we all come here with uh, particular talents and to make contributions to this reality. And uh, if we follow our own path and we follow our heart, and we don't live the life that other people carve out for us, but we take the initiative to live our life, the life that is ours to live, the life that is fulfilling and is satisfying and uh, that is full of adventure and, uh, and takes a certain amount of courage. And uh, I, I suppose here I'm talking typical hero's journey type stuff although it is not necessary that we have to fight all the time. Uh, it is merely getting into a certain flow. And this is the type of, I think, uh, feeling quality that we can tap in our training, get into a certain flow state. And when we can tap that in our training, stop trying so hard, uh, we can... Uh, reach our best potential and we get to practice it and that's the one thing I love about racing so you know so anyway just uh, uh, you, you'll see that I talk in uh, big round circles but I <laughs> usually can find my way back to, <laughs> to the question <laughs> so the world being a stage so you come in in your childhood and I believe that the parents that you have and the circumstances that you have and the culture that you're born into and the country and the time uh, and even the place in your family, all these uh, setups, they, they are part of the script and you have at some level consented to like this, this is the setup that I need for me to be able to uh, partake in this clay of my own making and really learn something about who you really are. And so my setup was I was the third of six children, a very active family, very headstrong mother and father. Uh, and uh, my setup was that uh, my first 
walking about, <laughs> running on my two little feet as a 18-month-year-old, I stood on glass and I ended up having a cut in my foot and uh, a cyst formed on my under my big toe. And uh, they figured that I still had some glass in my foot. And so I was put into hospital for surgery. And so the story begins. And that experience was one that I think colored my life uh, very much. It set up, um, it set me into a whole series of hospital misadventures that kept on going. I had a very serious uh, kidney bladder infection and uh, was taken away from my home and my family at various times and sometimes for long periods. And I think the, the longest was over a month, which for a little kid is a heck of a long time. And so uh, I will tell you this uh, strange thing that happens because I think if we know quantum physics, we know that all time is just really a big now and we have past, present and future just as an organizing system like a librarian would have a catalog, keep everything in alphabetical order so we don't drive ourselves crazy. And so we are at any point in time able to tap into uh, our probable futures and that is uh, our path of where we are supposed to be. And, uh, and there was a point where I was kept in hospital. Um, I was about five or six years old. Uh, I was very, very lonely, very unhappy, uh, and missed my family terribly. And one day I was looking out the window because I tried to make a connection with the outside world, and I saw a grassy field and rolling hills. And as I'm watching, I see a woman running up past and looking up, she stopped and she looked up at the window where I was and I looked back at her. And I remember hearing her say, don't give up kiddo, it gets really good from here on in. <laughs> okay, so uh, I did get better. Um, my foray into running was a, a incredible freedom uh, it helped me to outgrow my uh, my infection, uh, the troubles that I had. Uh, when I was 13, I joined the senior athletic club. So we were little kids that did little sprints. And uh, I don't know if you still do that in Australia, but I'm sure it was a similar system. And so I yeah, would go do. to our local athletic club. And when I went to high school, I then qualified to go to the senior athletics, which was on a Wednesday night. And uh, I was, I, I loved running, uh, but I was not really good at it. There were girls who were just, they were little dynamos and man, they could sprint past you like anything. And no matter how hard I tried, you know, I'd just pick up those long loopy legs and they wouldn't go any faster. <laughs> so I, I couldn't win the sprints. Uh, but they had a 440 yards. Now this is on a grass track, 440 yards. So it's, it really dates me, I know. But anyway, um, so I ran this 440 yards for the first time. And in that extra 330 yards, 
I found my distance, and that was that I was a distance runner because I beat all the girls who could beat me in the sprints. Yeah. And that started me on a path. And, uh, and so 800 metres became 880 yards, became my event, uh, and I became quite good at it. I was representing my country by the time I was 16. Uh, and that was the beginning of just this incredible international career. So running from the, from being feeling imprisoned in a, on a hospital bed to having the whole world at my feet, you know, that was what running did for me. It was an incredible freedom. And I, I had wonderful trips. Uh, and I was at an age where I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to beat these people who were older and bigger and, and already had carved out a name for themselves. So, you know, I would get in there and, uh, you know, really have a go at it. And um, next thing I was running in uh, uh, Commonwealth Games, etc. Now, I have to remind you back, that back then, so you're talking Commonwealth Games, 1974, Oh my goodness, I know that to you young people that sounds like uh, another world and it probably was. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I ran very well in all those events. I ran international cross country. I went to world championships. Uh, but the longest event for women at that time in the Olympics was the 1500 meters. And so, and I, I, I would have loved to have gone to the Olympics, and I did actually make a qualifying time for the Olympics uh, when I was uh, still a teenager, but they would not send me because I did my qualifying time with men in the race, and that was against the rules. So, you know, that, that was another, there seemed to always be forces, and they were often uh, came in uh, a blazer with a badge on their pocket <laughs> forces that would seek to uh, hold you back and uh, put barriers in your way which is which is all par for the course we have to learn to negotiate everything and that's uh, how we become um, uh, I think uh, self-reliant and uh, self-generating in, in our path and so you know I often was pushing up against official gym who, who would ban you because you didn't have the right uh, colour shorts on or something like that, or your number wasn't pinned correctly. So, yep. um, yeah, and maybe that still exists today. Um, <laughs> but anyway, that's their job. Uh, so in 1979, just by a very strange... Um, a series of incidents. So I, I actually became a school teacher, Dane, because yeah. uh, in those days there wasn't any profession in sports for young women, certainly not as a runner, and uh, it, it just wasn't in the vocabulary. And when I left high school, and, and the, the most important thing to me was my running, was uh, I didn't know what to do. Uh, <gasps> and I thought, well, okay, I'll go to phys ed school and I'll become a phys ed teacher because that's, you know, what sporty girls did. So, <laughs> so that's what I did. Yeah. And uh, that was pretty incredible. So I, I went to Otago University and I studied phys ed. Um, so, 
you know, the most amazing things would happen. And uh, there was a certain amount of synchronicity. And, uh, and I think that just being, uh, knowing what I wanted to do, like, it was like, okay, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm off to university, and my running is the most important thing. I, I took my opportunity. I, I went where I wanted to go, um, and I was really excited about it. I think uh, knowing that level of excitement, that enthusiasm, and being able to go for it when you feel that and act on it at the time will lead you on the right path towards what you uh, towards what what is your path and uh, so anyway my first day in Otago I was at the Z school I had on my running shorts and my shoes I didn't know where I was I didn't know which way to go and I was standing on the top of the steps looking to the right looking to the left going okay where do I go in this strange town yeah and this group of guys came running by and one of them looked up and saw me standing there in my running shoes and shorts, and he yelled out, hey, chick, you're going to come and run with the boys today? <laughs> and, and I went, sure. So I, you know, ran, uh, bounded down the steps and joined on the back of these guys, and they were a group of lunchtime runners. They were actually all very good runners. Um, they ran pretty fast. I could only just hold on to them. Uh, but... The next day I was there again and the next day and they became my training buddies. And yeah. uh, so, uh, and th they called me, my name was Running Chick. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and uh, then it came uh, Saturdays and Sundays. And you know, Arthur Lydiard with his famed Waiatarua run in Auckland. Well, every city had their own version of the Lydiard run the group of, you know, Harriers or whatever they were would uh, go on. And this one was um, the Waitati run, and it was well over 20 miles, and it was a typical, you know, you ran out the coast, you ran over some great big hill and came back down the valley. And, um, and I started doing these runs with these guys. So I was doing 20-mile runs, and, uh, and I was an 800-meter runner. But this was typical Lydia stuff. Uh, build a big base, my aerobic base got bigger and bigger, I was running probably 80 miles a week, and you're talking early 70s, and this was not, um, I was just doing what the guys did, yep. it wasn't what we accepted that women did, I don't think there were many women that did that kind of training then, but what happened was I just was winning everything that I was going in and doing really, really well. So, so if we fast forward a little bit, yep. uh, I came out of phys uh, ed school, graduated, I went to training college, and then, you know, not knowing what to do next, uh, I went and got my job as a school teacher to teach phys ed. And I hated it. <laughs> I, I just, I didn't want to be doing it. Um, I didn't want to go to school. I'd be dragging my feet. Oh, I don't want to go to school today. Yep. But, but you're the teacher, you know. <laughs> 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 so anyway, uh, 
eventually, uh, I, and I had a boyfriend who was also a phys ed teacher. He lived in a, a neighboring town and he used to come over on the weekends and he had a car and he would take me places and all the rest. And, and so I sort of fell into that life and, and we got engaged and I can remember it was over the school holidays and he gave me an engagement ring and it was a sapphire ring with a couple of little diamonds on the side and, uh, you know, and I was walking around on my first day at school with my hand in front of me sort of delicately poised <laughs> as I showed off my new ring and I have to admit I was much, much more in love with the ring than I was with the guy I was going to marry. <laughs> and... Um, so the first class of the day was a cricket, cricket, you know, and uh, so I had the kids all lined up and I had some go out to the outfield and I remember this one boy, Calvin, who was not paying attention and he was on the outfield and I was yelling at him, you know, that, to turn around and he wasn't, he was off in the ozone somewhere. And so I said to the kids, okay, you keep playing. And I marched over to Calvin, and I'm taking these big strides and um, get to him so I can, you know, sort of loom over and go, what are you doing, young man, and uh, scare him. Yeah. Um, and uh, at that moment, with my hands on my hips, somebody hit the cricket ball, and it went full pout across the field, probably went a good, you know, 100, <laughs> 100 feet or so, and... It landed right on my engagement ring, and it cracked the ring, and, um, <laughs> and my hand swelled up, and, you know, so that was, you know, the end of my beautiful-looking ring, and now I had a swollen finger, and I had to put sellotape all around it so the stone didn't fall out until yep. my hand, you know, so, so till my hand went down and I could get the ring off and all the rest. And uh, so, you know, this is, I think... Uh, where this whole thing about uh, like there is another reality going on and yeah. uh, you know we are getting uh, messages from probably uh, our higher selves or whatever to get us back on the right track <laughs> and uh, if we pay attention you know we can listen to the subtle signals and if we don't pay attention then we uh, we get hammered yeah like we get we get a cricket ball on the engagement ring you know so uh, I realized that this was not the path that was for me. And yep. the thought of the life that I would be embodying and looking to the people around me and uh, the, the track that you got on, uh, that, that was not my path. And so I broke off the engagement um, gave him back his engagement ring. <laughs> I mean, it was a bit mangled, but anyway. Um, and uh, and so, uh, what happens next? Yeah. So the weekend that I was supposed to be married, um, uh, I didn't know what to do. So he wasn't coming over with his car and zooming off with me, you know. And uh, so I'd sort of done myself in that way. Uh, so there was a marathon going on in Auckland. And so my friend invited me to come up and watch this marathon. And 
it was around the Auckland waterfront. It was called the Choicer Marathon in those days. There were only men running at the time. And Arthur Lydiard, who was coaching my friend, had an American staying with him. And she says, come up and uh, you can stay with me. And uh, then you can, there's this American here and they're having this banquet after the marathon. And so you can be his blind date for the banquet. <laughs> and I go, okay, all right, I'll do that. I haven't got anything else going, so I'll do that. So, so I went up to Auckland. I watched the marathon, and I had this very, uh, probably slightly arrogant, but a track, an 800-meter track runner's view of the marathon. Like, yep. here's these people running the marathon who... <laughs> I'll just wait for this truck to go by. Here's, yeah. here's the people running the marathon who are too slow for the track, right? Yep. So, so I sort of considered marathon runners sort of B-grade runners, right? <laughs> um, and and I saw him running the race, and he wasn't having a good time. And I go, oh, geez, I don't know if I want to go out with him. He didn't look that great, you know, <laughs> in the later stages of the marathon. Um, so anyway, that night... Uh, I met him at the door and uh, he was seemed to me the most handsome, sophisticated, uh, wonderful guy. And uh, he had written a book. Uh, he had been to the Olympics. Uh, he, he just seemed like a real dreamboat. And I sort of <laughs> fell in love at the at first sight there. And, uh, and we ended up having a, a little romance and he invited me to come to the U.S., and so then I had to figure out how to get out of my teaching job and go to the U.S. Well, um, I got myself fit enough to make a New Zealand cross-country team in Ireland. And I went to Ireland and uh, I figured I would get myself a ticket from Ireland to the U.S. It was my plan. And that's what I did. So... I sort of, uh, I did a big detour <laughs> and I went and stayed with him. And uh, so, and this was the uh, 1979 actually. Okay. So, yeah. Is that, and is that how you moved to the U.S. from then? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And uh, so I got together with him and, and he was going to all these races and he was a real Lydiard guy. And, uh, you know, of course, I knew Lydiard training really well. I'd always trained that way. And so he became my coach and, uh, and we went to races together and that was all really fun. Um, his girlfriend was pretty upset that I'd moved in, but um, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was by the by. Um, yeah. And... I started going to races, so I went to my first 5K race with this. And, and again, I was joining in with a group of guys and doing what they, they were doing. And uh, it was lovely. And I loved being accepted by the men, and, and they were always very, very good to me. And so I ran my first 5K race. I ran my first 10K race. I did my first 10-mile uh, race. Uh, and then I did a 20-mile race. I, I set a world best for women in the 20 miles. Oh, wow. And it didn't seem to me like any big deal because I was used to doing these 20-mile runs with my uh, men folk when I was a running chick. So uh, 
getting on these 20 mile runs was wonderful. <laughs> and, um, and then the next race was a marathon and it was called Grandma's Marathon. And uh, Grandma's Marathon is sponsored by a saloon called Grandma's. And uh, it's a finish, finishing point. So I joined in this marathon and I had a car waiting for me at the 20 mile mark. Yeah. I said, I'll do my 20 mile run. You know, I'm not interested in running a marathon. I couldn't see the point in it. <laughs> but uh, so, so people were waiting for me at the 20 mile mark and I got to the 20 mile mark and I went, well, I feel pretty good. Uh, it starts to, a lot of it goes downhill and uh, I think I, I'll just keep going because six miles more is nothing and I might get a prize. Yeah, seemed to me pretty good. Okay, get a prize for doing a training run. Yeah, so I did. I finished the marathon, um, and I ran two thirty-seven, um, and I got a prize. I was the first woman, and uh, you know, so that was fun. And uh, but I just poo-pooed the whole thing because, you know, it didn't really count. It was not the track. And I went back to doing my track races. And so for three years there, I was spending my time in the US doing road races. I would come down to New Zealand for three months in the summer and do my track races. Yeah. And uh, so that went through the early 80s. And uh, as a result of that marathon, I got invited to go to the showcase marathon for women and it was put together by Catherine Switzer, and you might remember Catherine Switzer from Boston Marathon fame. So yep. she was the first woman to enter the race using her initials and officially got a number, and then the race director tried to throw her out of the race. And uh, she got a lot of publicity because of that. And she went on to dedicate her life to creating opportunities for women, and one of them was to go to Avon and get them to sponsor these races so that she could provide a showcase event for inclusion into the Olympic Games. And there, there were certain criteria that had to be fulfilled for consideration, which meant there were so many continents, so many people from so many countries, etc. So, um, so she got Avon to sponsor this race in London and invited all the top women marathoners from around the world. Well, on the basis of my 237 marathon at Grandma's, I got on that list. <laughs> and so I was invited to go to London to run a marathon. And it was all expenses paid, and it was for me and my boyfriend. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I go, wow, I get to go to London, all expenses paid, and all I have to do is run a marathon, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I really don't care how what the marathon does anyway. But, you know, I was, I was still a very competitive person, so... Um, so I went to London and I got in that uh, marathon and uh, my boyfriend was gung-ho on it because he was a marathoner himself and uh, so he'd got me to do all the 100 mile weeks and all the typical Lydiard stuff and uh, anyway I got in that race and I won it and uh, so you know slowly the the wheels are turning in my brain and 
I'm starting to become a little more comfortable with being identified as a marathon runner. Uh, and I went back to running track, and uh, that all went really well. I ran the Commonwealth Games in 1982 in Brisbane. I, um, I medaled in the 1500 meters and the uh, 3000 meters. Uh, so, you know, this, but this marathon thing was just the wheels were turning in the background. And uh, it so happened that the marathon got included in the Olympic Games for 1984. So that was a huge milestone. And I remember Catherine calling me with with that news. And I'm thinking, okay, I've got another shot here at the Olympics. And I could do it in the in the marathon. So, you know, I was starting to consider the marathon as my event. And, you know, that, that was significant too, because they went from the 1500 to the marathon in one leap for women. Yeah. And, and once the marathon was there, then they started to fill in the other events. So they had a 3,000 metres and then, uh, you know, eventually uh, Seoul, they added the 5 and 10 and took out the 3 and then they added, you know, steeplechase and etc. So there was complete parity for women. So that 1980 event in London, I think, was a, a keystone event that started something in motion that was time to have happened. There were other uh, lobbies to get the marathon and the Olympics forward, but I think that was one of the key ones. So uh, so I got to run in this yeah. uh, first women's Olympic marathon, and uh, in qualifying for that, I went to the Boston Marathon and won that in 1984, and that was my ticket to the marathon in L.A. So... Dana, I'd, I'd like to just take a moment here and yep. just point out that yeah. the Lydiard training yes. set me up for the marathon without me even knowing it. So were you introduced to the Lydiard training by uh, John John Davies, was it? Uh, yes, and even before John, but okay. uh, yeah, uh, I think... I, I had other people who gave me sort of advice and training, etc. And I was just a barefoot schoolgirl yep. running around the fields with my dad. And uh, we, we did some road running and I wore little canvas tennis shoes, <laughs> basically. Um, so, you know, it was all pretty innocent there. We didn't have stopwatches. We didn't know how fast we were going. We didn't even know how far it really was. You know, you might go out in your car, but it depended how good your odometer was. Uh, but, you know, I spent a lot of time running with my dad. And that uh, um, when it was realized that I had some talent, uh, my club captain took me to John Davies, who lived 15 miles away in a neighboring town, and said, we'd like you to coach this girl. And so John got me on a Lydiard schedule, or yep. schedule, as I probably should say down there. <laughs> um, he got me on a, a program and uh, just doing the typical Lydiard, but a very abbreviated. I mean, I wasn't put on 100 miles a week or anything like that. I can remember that actually the first time I ran 40 miles in a week and putting that in my little training diary. <laughs> But I don't know if it was 40. It was probably, you know, might have been 35. It might have been 45. You know? <laughs> uh, 
uh, could have been anything, but, um, you know, that was, uh, and, and as my aerobic fitness grew, so did my ability to be able to uh, run faster in my uh, middle distance events. And then I think all that long running that I did at university uh, set me up for being able to jump in a marathon and ho-hum, it was no big deal. I could run pretty well aerobically, but, you know, they, and the marathon is 99.9% aerobic anyway. Yep. So, you know, uh, so that I could jump in and do that was pretty good. And the, the great thing was that uh, I got into being marathon. Um, I was in the Olympics in the marathon. I finished fifth in the Olympic marathon. Uh, I went back to the track, and my track times all improved. Oh, really? Yeah. So I I think uh, maybe it was 1986 or seven. I set the New Zealand 1500 meter record. I ran 4:10.3. Yep. For the and. Uh, you know, that was when I was well established as a marathon runner and, you know, people are going, oh, how can somebody who's a slow marathon runner run that fast, you know, but they forgot that I, actually I was a, a decent track runner in my time. But I think that's the beauty of the Lydiate system. Yep, yep. So, uh, you know, I had uh, ability to run well right across the board. Um I actually, I represented New Zealand. I was on the four by 400 meter uh, record breaking team, the New Zealand record breaking team in 1973. So, oh, really? you know, so, <laughs> I mean, not that I, I think my fastest was, you know, uh, 56 for the, for the 400 meters. So, oh. you know, it's okay, but I'm not going to be winning any Olympic medals with those kinds of times. But, you know, it was a decent basis for being a middle distance runner. And, um, and then after Los Angeles, did you see yourself as a marathoner now? Uh, yeah, more and more. So I started, you, you know, it was part of this whole marathon boom. So yep. then I started to get invitations overseas, you know, and I already was. And, <laughs> you know, the marathons were the, were the good trips. You know, I went to Rio de Janeiro. I ran the first marathon there in Rio, which was quite <laughs> an experience. Um, and uh, I ran, uh, well, what happened in uh, 81, I ran in the Cascade runoff where we challenged the, uh, the system and uh, Nike had put up a purse and, uh, and I'd taken the money. Uh, so, you know, and got banned by my federation. And oh. that was me and uh, Alison Rowe and Anne Ordain. So we finished first, second and third in the race. And uh, and we all took the money and uh, all hell broke loose. So uh, what, they banned what, us. What race was that? Uh, the 1981 Cascade runoff. Okay. And it, it was another showcase event to uh, Nike put up a $100,000 purse and the runners took it, and this was to uh, bring down this amateur uh, system where 
you know, it was a, a sort of a mafia. <laughs> you know, you <laughs> yeah. run for nothing, they take all the money, they give the, you know, key people's uh, a brown paper bag with a, some notes in it. And, yep. uh, but there was nothing fair about it. So, you know, we were part of this movement to bring the sport into professionalism and to have it, the goodies be much more fairly distributed and, and up front. And I, I felt very strongly about that. And, um, and I, I don't think I realised the implication that uh, in the past what had happened with people who had tried to do this, they had been banned for life. It had actually been the end of their careers. Mm. I felt safety because I had the other two women with me and uh, various people, um, Americans and uh, some people from other countries. But, uh, but you know, we were banned and uh, that went on for a while and it caused a huge amount of controversy and, you know, we really did uh, hit officialdom head on with the whole thing. Uh, and that was 1981. Well, 1982 is the Commonwealth Games and they realize they've just cut off their distance running potential medalists in the women's. <laughs> <laughs> so fortunately, they could see a value in having us back in the fold. So then the, the negotiations started and... Uh, they allowed us to come back in and compete. And, you know, that got them a gold medal. Anne Dame won the gold medal in the 3000 and I won the bronze in the 3000 and the 1500. Yep. So, <laughs> you know, that was certainly a good move on their part. And, uh, <laughs> but, but it did break open this whole thing about amateur running and that they, you know, decided it was a big enough problem and they had enough... Uh, key people, key runners, that uh, they had to make some compromise. And so they started a trust fund system, which eventually gave way to like, okay, now they openly have prize money and that whole amateur code had had its time and done its day. Okay. And we were recognized as professionals. And I, I feel really, really proud of that. Yeah, you should. Uh, yeah, because it's... Um... I didn't know any of that, and it's um, yeah, really changed. Um, yeah, today. Yeah, so um, and it also was for me a personal uh, breakthrough in that I stood for something that I believed in, and it worked out really well for everyone in the yes. end. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, I think you know the few times in your life when you're called to make a stand, um, that was one of those for me and, and it, it was, it paid huge dividends. The other thing was that officialdom sort of left me alone after that. Yeah. You know, so uh, they, they let me sort of get on with doing my own thing and I wasn't, you know, bothered by somebody checking to see if I, you know, had my number on the right side or whatever it was. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think they knew that um, if they were going to pick a fight with me, it they had to be pretty careful about it because, you know, <laughs> I, I had gone to the mat over that one. Um, so uh, that 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 worked out really well. And then that started with 
getting invitations to race marathons and uh, Japan was a big one. So I started going to Japan quite a lot and racing there and it was really, really exciting. Yeah, I saw and, that um, you had, um, was it three race wins in Osaka and, and, and one of them, uh, I think it was 87, you had a really good, uh, strong, oh, nice race finish with uh, Lisa Ondieki. Yes. Yeah, Lisa. Lisa was one of my arch rivals. You know, <laughs> it's good. Like you always have a couple of people that you you just can't stand having them beat you. You know, and Lisa <laughs> was one of those. And it, it's wonderful. I mean, may God bless you with good rivals because they will drive you to greater heights than you otherwise would go to. And uh, she was one of them. Um, Anne Ordain was another one of mine. So, um, yeah. and uh, they, they, you know, they were fierce. Yeah. And. Uh, yeah, it was good. Good racing. In '88 uh, in Seoul, uh, you you I, I've heard you talk about um, your Olympic experience there, and uh, rather than being really disappointed, I, I heard you summarise it as just a great lesson. Um, and I thought this was uh, you came 33rd, um, but I thought it was a really good takeaway um, and, and really nice way to view a performance that you know going from fifth in Los Angeles and then 33rd at Seoul. But then rather than be negative, you, you said it was a great lesson. And uh, what did you mean by this? Uh, well, I believe that it's really important, and I've, I've learned this as a runner, that we always put things in a positive context. So either you learn uh, how to uh, manifest what you want. So you realize your goal, okay, and you do that correctly, or you don't get what you want, but you learn how to adjust so that you can come back again and have another chance and do it correctly. So it was either getting what you want or a learning experience. So it was always a plus for me. I never considered anything uh, a negative experience. Um, yeah. So it was really just an attitude of making lemonade out of lemons, no matter yeah. what. Yeah. But I think that's really important. Uh, so, um, in Seoul, uh, I had trouble getting selected. I was not selected till probably I think about six weeks before the race. So they kept on saying I had to do another race uh, to before they would select me. And uh, so I felt like uh, my focus was then diluted. It was always on qualifying rather than uh, being able to concentrate on the race, which is uh, always, always a big one, you know, because you can, you get many people that they make the qualifying, they do really well in the qualifying and they get to the big one and uh, their focus hasn't been on the, on the big race. And, and that uh, was a, a lesson for me to realize that uh, I had lost my focus for that. Yeah. I, I had felt like I had to justify my place on the team. Um, I think because I'd finished fifth in LA that they expected that I, to justify my selection that I had to finish first, second or third and bring away a medal. Um, I realized that uh, putting that sort of pressure on yourself is uh, really like way too much. Uh, 
I think if we try too hard for something, uh, we actually put too much into into it, and uh, that excess energy uh, is enough to give us to turn it to the opposite of what we want. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you, know, you can. You always know when you're you're out of the flow and you're just trying too hard, and you start micromanaging, and you know you go, "Oh, I can't run because I've got two odd socks," you know, or something. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I didn't get to have my cornflakes this morning, and I always have cornflakes. You know, so yeah, um, you know. So when I did really well, I didn't let those things bother me. Yeah. I just I took an easygoing attitude. I think one of the great things about traveling and especially going to Japan and uh, is that it's so different that you you can't get your home comforts. You're not going to get the food you want. You're not you know their beds are hard as anything. You know you know uh, whatever it is. And I just go with the flow. And I just go you know everything is everything's falling into place. I don't have to. Uh, micromanage all these little things. I'm just here to win. Yes. Yep. And you know, when I could adopt that attitude, and I didn't do it all the time, I'd get caught like anybody else. Um, but when I could adopt that attitude, I would walk to the start line and I would go, "This race is mine. I know I've got it." Yes. Yeah. And it's an incredible thing to have that sort of confidence, and and you project it. The others pick up on it. Uh, when they see that, yeah, they, they'll let you lead. They'll let you, um, yeah, they'll, they'll just fall behind. It's quite amazing, actually. <laughs> um, I've, yeah. I've heard you talk um, in a similar light when it comes to training and uh, uh, that, like, in this modern era with all our uh, watches and Garmin and Strava and our reliance on, on heart rate monitors that um, sometimes uh, we lose that sort of internal compass and that sense of self and uh, we, we base how we feel too much on, on uh, yeah, what the watch says. Um, yeah, like it, it, it sort of, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I've heard you talk really, really nicely about that. Do you mind sort of, uh, yeah, sort of opening up on your thoughts on, 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 uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the, yeah. So when I got into teaching this Lydiard training, yeah. uh, there was so many mythologies about Lydiard and Lydiard was just a very pragmatic guy, you know, if it worked, it worked, you know? And, uh, so, and they didn't talk in terms of, um, you know, uh, he was a master psychologist, but they didn't talk in those sorts of terms. Yeah, but, uh, so it was just all very practically based. But uh, so when they talked about um, running 100 miles a week, it didn't mean that everybody had to run 100 miles a week. So, you know, and, and there's, this is where all these Lydian myths grew up. Uh, but what it was about was maximizing your aerobic capacity. So it's obvious, you know, you go into a race, you want to have as much energy available to you because the more energy you have available to you, the further and faster you are going to be able to go. So that's pretty obvious. And you, where you have renewable energy is your 
or aerobic system. You know, your anaerobic system is not renewable. You're going to run out of that pretty quickly. Um, so, so th that part of it um, is good. But uh, in the days when we were running, we didn't have watches. Okay, so, you know, when we would go out for a run, we'd look at the kitchen clock and we'd go, it's five to six. <laughs> and then we would go for our run and we would come back in and we would go, oh, it's five past seven. Yeah. What time did we leave again? Was it five to six or five past six? Can't remember. Okay, so, you know. Yeah. So it was really, really inaccurate. And it didn't really matter. But what mattered was how the run felt. And there is a zone that you can get into, and it's sort of like you hit the sweet spot. And that sweet spot is when you've got the ATP renewable battery, you know, just going and and you feel like you can go forever and it's effortless and it has a wonderful feeling quality. Well, so what I see is a lot of people have lost that feeling quality and they're always trying to hit a time that's pre-subscribed from somebody else. It's somebody else's idea of where you're supposed to be at this certain sort of time and uh, they, they forget that it's a synthesis of so many things within your body that enables the whole thing to fire up and, and for you to get that wonderful feeling. So if people concentrated more on, on uh, getting that, that great feeling and stop worrying so much about what number they're going to put down in their training diary or nobody has training diary anymore, they're going to put on Strava or whatever it is, you know. Um, and the thing is that's uh, it becomes a very um, outside-in approach instead of an inside-out approach. So we're then trying to fit ourselves to fit somebody else's version of what a good runner is supposed to be or what good training is supposed to look like. And it doesn't work that way. It's not linear. You know, we, we put it in this linear brain of ours and we think, okay, well, you know, I'm going to increase 10% a week or, you know, I'm going to hit this pace and it's going to be 10% faster than the pace I did the week before and all the rest. But um, it's all uh, ask about face, if you ask me. You know, yeah, yeah. It, it's um, because the art of peaking is exponential. It's not linear. You get to the race and you take off and you're so much better than you were when you were training. That's the whole idea. And, you know, I was explaining the other day and I had Rod Dixon and we were talking about, you know, this idea of peaking and what a wonderful feeling it is. And, and you know you've got it, but it takes a certain amount of being able to let go. It's, it's not, you know, because we think we have to strive and strive and strive and strive and we've got to work hard, yeah. work hard. What a, what a horrible couple of words, <laughs> you know. You, you tell somebody to work hard and they immediately they're going to tense up. Yeah, like tra train and hard to race hard. Right there, yeah. <laughs> so, and, and as soon as you get into that stress response, you go into a different type of metabolism. Okay, and then you're out of it. Your, your body goes, it's an emergency. You know, the reptilian brain's going and you, you're scared as hell and you've got the adrenaline going and you've lost your flow. Yeah. 
And uh, so finding that flow state is really, really important. And sometimes it means for people to just take that damn watch off <laughs> and, and get into nature and really like enjoy it and get those feelings that those feelings are what are going to take you there. And th then if you can get to a race and you can capture that state in a race, it is just sublime because you feel like you can do no wrong. Yeah. It's just like, you know, I've got it covered. You know? <laughs> and it's, it's a wonderful feeling of uh, mastery, self-mastery. What would your advice be to someone who is super reliant on their watch and is sort of that type A personality where they have to see a certain number on their watch every day to be happy. Uh, they're really trying to tr get better as a runner, but they're almost digging their own hole uh, because they're almost too keen and they're trying too hard and uh, they seem to have plateaued. What would, um, yeah, have you seen many runners turn that around and uh, uh, if so, what, what have you really seen that's, um, yeah, perhaps uh, some of the little tips that it's worked? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I see these, uh, one of the big training mistakes is just becoming over-reliant on technology and then uh, having some, some program that's a cookie cutter and you're trying to fit yourself to it. And, and then you're using this technology to try to make the numbers fit but the numbers are not really telling the truth. And to be a good runner, to fulfill your potential, is a, an act of absolute honesty. You've got to just be honest with yourself. And uh, But I think if you can understand how things really work, and this is where I'd really encourage people to come to the course, uh, because we show you. And it's not rocket science. It's just that the body works in rhythms and we need to understand these rhythms and we need to understand how uh, that we do these uh, developments in a sequential order so that everything builds on the next thing. So you're always setting yourself up for the next thing that is to come. And you can, uh, you have to give away that little, uh, dopamine rush of being able to put a number in a, in yeah. a computer, you know, yeah. a computer really, it doesn't care. It <laughs> really doesn't care. It's, you, you know, I mean, maybe it might do a little, you know, cloud burst or something like that, <laughs> get 100, but you know, it's, it's not worth it. Um, so, uh, the, the big thing is, I think that we are told that there's something wrong with us. A lot of people feel like, oh, there's there's something that they will tell you they're too slow, or they, um, or you know, women will think they're too fat, or their legs are too short. You know, Japanese girls would say, oh, my legs are too short, and I go, well, do they reach the ground? And I go, yeah, and I go, okay, they're long enough. Um, yeah, so uh, there there is nothing wrong with us. We have everything we need within us. We just need to know how to use it. Yep. Yeah. And 
we have so much potential, so much potential. But, you know, we go about things in a way that uh, we rob ourselves half the time. I, I found this, you know, coming from New Zealand and everybody training Lydiard, and we all knew about peaking. And I don't know if things have changed, but we all knew that, you know, if you did things a certain way and, you know, and you knew when to push and when to take it easy and, you know, and we always had a good laugh and there was great camaraderie and we didn't take ourselves too seriously. And uh, so we were always feel, filling ourselves full of, you know, these these good feeling hormones, etc. cetera. Uh, but when we got out and race, we really race well. And that's, uh, a, you know, a New Zealand legacy and, and uh, I think also with Australia as well. But, um, when I got to America and you got all these jobbers in it, there's so many people who they always were equating their training time to their race time. They didn't know how to train correctly. So they'd had an expectation that their training time was their racing time. <laughs> so then they would start to race their trainings harder and harder because they thought that would equate to a faster race, which isn't how it works at all. So um, it really just takes uh, like, hey guys, how about you just, you know, diverge from what you're doing and you could probably uh, really do so much better than you've ever done before. And, and what I see is people just overtrain, they do the wrong type of training and they, they do it for too long, and they do things too close to their races or things that they're not ready for. Uh, you see these people who are beginning marathon runners and they try to do a 20-mile run on a Sunday and, you know, they're out there for four or five hours and they're absolutely dead by the time they get to the race, and, uh, yep. and they hate it. And yeah. it's, it's, not, it's not good advice and good coaching, and it could be just so much better. And so that's, that's what I uh, teach people. And yep. first of all, I teach them that they are uh, constantly renewing themselves. Just while we were sitting here, you, every second, you lost about uh, 250 million cells died <laughs> and new ones reformed. So uh, at that rate, you know, after a few hours, well, um, you're not quite the same Dane that uh, started this, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're, you're going through this renewal process. Yeah. And, you know, so that's what you're harnessing in the training. Yeah. You're using the body's renewal capability and you're giving it a certain stimulus. So when it renews itself, it does it by adapting to that particular stimulus. Oh, that's yeah that, yeah that's like all that's what training is yeah it's um, yeah. fantastic information um i think um yes so many people will um yeah gain so much just from that chat alone but um if they wanted to reach out to access your course um lorraine um and and sit in and um join the lydiard course um how do they go about doing this Okay, they go to lydiardfoundation.org. Yep. 
on the home page now we're redoing our site it's a really it's a dinosaur it's horrible to negotiate so just bear with but uh, you can go to the front page and it has the courses that are coming up and uh, we have one it will be every Sunday morning for three hours for Australians okay and uh, uh, we have a special on at the moment, so um, it's uh, we, we cut the price because we realise people are having hard times and uh, nobody's quite sure what's going on. Um, if even if that is too much, you can write to me. So it's Lorraine at LydiaFoundation.org, and you can say, "Hey, uh, give me a coupon. I, I'm really I'd love to do it, but I can't quite afford it." I want people to be able to come if they really want to. It's not just for coaches, but you will get a coaching certification uh, after you pass an exam. Don't be afraid of the exam. I help everybody through it. I just want you to know how it works. Okay, so I'm just making sure that you, you've got it. Okay. Yeah. And and I'll I'll walk you through it if you're having trouble with it. Some people go, oh, exams, I can't do exams. You know, they have they've already been uh, ruined by school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely got um, that stigma. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's just great information. So we should know how our bodies work, and I think we need to get back into a rightful relationship with our bodies. Yeah. And uh, running is so primal and wonderful and how we move and uh, how we can improve ourselves through it is a, a great means to get to know yourself. Yeah. And, the, you know, and because the body is, it's primal, it, um, it knows what it knows and it precedes the mind. You know, it's... The way you feel is the way you feel. You know, you can try to talk yourself into like, oh, well, I'm not tired, but the body knows if it's tired or not. Yeah. The body, the body's giving you feedback all the time. It's always responding to the environment, giving you feedback, which is very, very accurate. But you've got to know how to read it. So we walk you through that. We know we let you know, okay, if you do a workout, how much is enough and how much is too much and um, how much is too little and uh, um, why are you doing a workout and what kind of stimulus are you giving the body and then what the recovery looks like so that you know if you are in uh, if you're still where you are on the recovery curve because that's really important yeah because if you go and hammer yourself when your body's still in a recovery mode, then you're eventually you're going to get injured or sick or something. The body's going to go, okay, I'm shutting myself down before this idiot kills me, you know. Um, so uh, we do have these mechanisms uh, inherent within that to look after us. And, and things are set up in our favor. We don't have to struggle. You know, people think it's got to be a big struggle. You know, and, and it doesn't. Yeah. It's actually, it should be pleasant and fun and and you should be improving if you're training correctly. Yeah, I um, heard you uh, talk about um, some of the Japanese marathoners that sometimes come to Boulder 
um, at the start of their four-year Olympic um, marathon campaign. And, and you, you mentioned something like they even start the first year where they just do a lot of hikes. Um, so they're not, yeah. they're not really running that much. They're, they're doing a lot, lot of hikes and they're starting just with, with walking um, and strengthening their legs. Um, and yeah, another, another quote I wrote down, um, like, uh, slow down, have relaxed fun rather than hard work. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, that sort of summarizes, um, I, I think there are a couple of points that a lot of people need to take on board. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think more than ever, um, people seem to be wanting to get out after being stuck inside and like, oh, finally, yeah. um, you know, and it's, it's back to basics. It's back to basics. Uh, so, uh, one of the recovery methods that we use is, uh, that I really advocate is, uh, going barefoot and, you know, just, uh, you know, barefoot on a, on a beach or on a grassy field or whatever, um, is fantastic, but it's, um, how many people, unless you live by the beach ever go barefoot? And there is a disperse, dispersion of uh, positive ions through your feet that it actually decreases inflammation. And it's a fantastic tool for recovery is to just go bare feet on the ground. Yeah. And that's just walking, like walking around or... Yeah. Or yeah. even just standing. You know, yeah. the, the body, there's a whole electrical system and uh, the, the, the feet are a couple of uh, poles that... Uh, conduct electricity through the body and uh, so you will get this flow of electrons from the earth uh, from your feet to the earth and uh, you know these things that our ancestors did all the time probably you know they didn't have these rubber shoes that insulated us and we live in insulated houses and drive around in insulated boxes. And, you know. <laughs> uh, so, you know, just getting back to nature. And I think that this whole COVID thing has been a fantastic opportunity for people to reset and say, what are we doing? Yeah. We can get out of the rat race. Let's, let's just take time out and figure out what's valuable and get back to nature. Nice. Yeah. And, and then just one other thing, you've also got your autobiography on the wings of Mercury. Um, I really like um, listening to you describe why you called it that and the meaning of the title um, to you. Uh, so yeah, do you mind um, also Lorraine op opening up to the listeners about, yeah, um, just um, the meaning of um, yeah, that title of the book? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, Mercury is uh, the planet, Mercury, uh, which is next to Earth, but it's also associated with the Greek god, no, not the Greek god, uh, the Roman god, Mercury, okay, all named after the planets, and Mercury is the messenger from heaven to Earth, and uh, in Greek mythology, he's known as Hermes, so he has wings on his feet, and he has a winged helmet, and he dashes from uh, heaven to earth, giving messages from the gods to the mortal realm, right? And yeah. uh, so I found that uh, very pertinent because it seemed to me when I was running, uh, 
old uh, Mercury or Hermes was uh, dashing back and forth, giving me just these wonderful ideas and great insights. And, you know, um, I could write whole poems and I could have conversations with people and, you know, work out everything in my head yeah. by the end of a run. You know? I'm the same. And that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's wonderful time, isn't it? To, yeah just to have communion with yourself and it's you talking to your higher self and that's what mercury does that's the runner in you so uh so i called my book on the wings of mercury because that was the journey that i'd been on and you know while in the beginning it seemed you know it was wonderful and i always wanted to have a gold medal and stand on the podium and you know do my victory pose and all that kind of stuff Uh, but as I got older, this inner journey became much, much more significant to me. And so what I was learning about myself and about my makeup and why I was so competitive and what it meant to me to win. So, you know, so you go round and round in circles and you finish in a certain order and somebody gets to throw their own arms in the air and the other one has to, you know, put their tail between their legs and slink away. Well, you know, you go, well, what was that all about? And what does it mean? And, uh, and so, and I am one of those people who has to, you know, has a very active mind and has to find meaning in things. And uh, so, that journey and the whole Olympic thing became very important to me. In fact, in uh, 92 before Barcelona, I did go to Greece and I did a like a, a little vision quest or whatever you'd like to say, a pilgrimage to the, the home of the Greek gods and, and to find out what uh, being an Olympian meant and uh, to dive into the mythology. I found Greece just an incredible, uh, fascinating place. Uh, and, and I went to Olympus and I went to uh, Delphi. Uh, the Greeks themselves uh, really revered the athlete and somebody who could uh, strive for excellence and physical excellence, particularly that athlete was the closest that man could become to a god. And in fact, in uh, Delphi, which is a very mystical site uh, on the side of a hill, uh, it has, as you go up the hill, it's tiered and it has, you know, the Temple of Apollo and, uh, you know, the the uh, Pythia Rock where they gave the oracles and da-da-da-da-da. Um, and at the very, very top of the hill, guess what's at the top? Oh. I'm not sure. It's it's a, it's a stadium. Oh, okay. It's a, it's a running track. Oh. <laughs> it holds a, the most exalted position on this hill, above you know, you know Aphrodite and you know, <laughs> all the rest. You know, it's the it's the running track. Yeah. That was the highest thing, and uh, so that was really amazing to me. And uh, and then I took a little pilgrimage up to the top of Mount Olympus. And I wanted to go and talk to uh, Zeus, who was the head Olympian, because I thought, well, if I'm going to the Olympics and I want to win the Olympics, um, I should go talk to Zeus because uh, um, he's the head guy, right? You, you know, <laughs> if, you, if you 
you know, you go talk to the boss, right? You don't talk yeah. to the secretary. If you really want it to happen, you've got to, like, you know, <laughs> speak in the restaurant where he's going and go into the bathroom and go, hey, you know, <laughs> I've really, you know, corner him somewhere, right? <laughs> so so I thought I'd go to the top of Mount Olympus and go have a talk to Zeus and ask him if he would give me an Olympic gold, right? Or at least help me. <laughs> they don't give you anything. You have to earn things, darn it. But, yeah, you do. You have to earn everything, Right. And uh, it's just yeah. Yeah, well, at, at, at thirty-seven, you 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 got the bronze medal, um, and I, and uh, how I came in contact with, with you was through Keith Livingston, and he um, forwarded me your details, and he said, "Oh, you've got to chat to L- Lorraine," and he told me this story about Arthur Lydiard um, uh, chatting to you before Barcelona and saying. Uh, I think you can you can go well at this Olympics. Um, uh, going into the Olympics, uh, did you think you could uh, win gold, or did you think you could go well? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You always go in thinking you're going to win. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you should. So, yeah, look, uh, the year before I went to Barcelona and I I went around the course to have a look and uh, I found that, uh, first of all, that it was really, really hot, like just incredibly hot. Barcelona in August is just sweltering. And... uh, I remember Steve Minaghetti really struggled... um... He, he didn't have a very good performance at Barcelona. Yeah. yeah. And the humidity is really high. And it, it just in the afternoon, you'd walk out of the room and, and it'd be like walking into an oven. And um, so, so, and then the other thing was that the, the course started about 26 miles out on the coast and it, it ran along the coast and, and went inland into the town of Barcelona. And then you, you got into the middle of the city and then it started on a very, just very gradual uphill and finished in the stadium, which is Montjuic, which is on top of a little mountain, right? So the last four miles was ever increasing steepness. And what I realized was, well, first of all, there were the things I hated in a marathon. Uh, heat. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, who wants to run a marathon in the heat, really? You know, like, you might as well sit on the beach and drink Mai Tais or something, you know. But, um, yeah, but uh, running a marathon is counterintuitive. And so I decided uh, that, you know, so... It's really, really hot. So I've got to learn to run in the heat. Not only learn to run in it, but learn to love it. And the other thing that I really hated in marathons was uphills. <laughs> so I like those Japanese ones. They were really flat, you know. Yeah. Zip around, you know. Uh, but no hills. But I didn't like the uphills. I could zoom down a hill pretty good. But actually finishing up a, uphill was like a real mental challenge for me. And so I had to get those two things squared away in my own mind because if I had any hope of winning, I couldn't have this fear of not being able to handle those two conditions. 
So I spent the year before Barcelona dressing up, layering up, running in the heat of the day, just creating humidity and, and heat, heat training. Uh, and then behind my house was a hill, so I'd just live at the beginning of the foothills. So then I would finish every run up the biggest hill behind my house and I'd get to the top and I'd pretend I was running into the Olympic stadium. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I'd wave my arms in the air and pretend I was, everyone was cheering for me and here I come in. So I mean, you know, I did that pretty consistently for a whole year. And the thing is that I consider training is an act of reinventing yourself in, in a way that is of your choosing. So you, you choose a race, your dream race, and you work towards it, and you create a path. And in that, in that path, you are reinventing yourself. So your cells are dying off, and you're creating new ones, and you're giving it the correct stimulus. And you're making yourself into the person who can achieve the thing that you couldn't achieve before. So you're, you're actually using it to create a new and better you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you get to see how well you do. So you get to practice in a very safe way. And, and, and you make adjustments. And uh, you realize that, you know, you have um, all these layers of being that you have to negotiate through to be able to get there. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's just the, the physical being and you're just wearing it out because you're doing it wrong. And then you might find underlying a, as a belief that you are, that you're inadequate, or that you can't trust your body, or, or whatever. Um, and so then you get to re uh, re make your belief systems, and yeah. and we need to give up our belief systems. We need to be upgrading them all the time. It's just like having an operating system for your computer that is outdated. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and how often do we deliberately go through it and go, what beliefs am I holding that don't serve me anymore? Because <laughs> your beliefs are your servants. Yeah. That they, they are a portal. They are, um, what would you call them? Um, like uh, blueprints that, that we structure reality through. And, uh, you know, if you have a, a childhood belief and they go, Oh, you know, you're you're an idiot, and you carry that belief, and then you're trying to do something, and you're putting it into this belief system that you're an idiot. Well, you've got to change the belief system because the container is just not going to work. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like being on the Titanic, and you're just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, but you're still going to crash. You know, so you know. You've got to get off the Titanic. You've got to get on a, a ship that's not going to sink. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, yeah. That's like that's so powerful because it really demonstrates that sort of mind mind body connection um, there is in running. Um, and like, I wanted to like, I know I, I'm wary that I've held you up a long time, Lorraine, already. Um, but there was one one nagging question I still had. And I know a lot of listeners will listen in and, and wonder about, like, you had such a good long career um, and, yeah, the, your career longevity um, was amazing. Would, 
would you put that down to like really just learning a lot about yourself and uh, developing that great sort of intuition and so you're training to what your body felt like it needed and then I suppose the Lydiard system and, and just great coaching or like what, what would you put down your career longevity to? Uh, I think having a really good basis in the Lydia training was one. I think uh, I learned to be easy on myself. So uh, I would take uh, two or three weeks off a year, no running. Yeah. Um, and I knew a lot of my uh, friends that raced, they were too scared to take time off. Yeah. Because they thought that they would lose it. Um, I always knew that I could take it down, I could take it up, you know. Um, so, uh, and I think because, you know, you're not done till you're done. And I had certain things that I needed to learn about myself and, and I wasn't done and so I'd be coming back again. Yeah. And besides, it was so much fun. <laughs> it was just a blast. I mean, just going to the Olympics is like, man, that's like just most incredible thing and I got to do it four times you know and um so yeah I was just having a good time but you know then it came like that part of my life was done and I knew it uh but I didn't know it until I actually ran that fourth olympics and then I go okay you know um, and that's a whole other story and maybe we can do another interview on that sometime. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I have had probably the most self-revelatory experiences during Olympic marathons. And um, so that they are a special time and I think, you know, just tapping into that whole Olympic culture and it's incredible history that goes back to ancient times and uh, what it's about and also its code of conduct for athletes and uh, the Olympic code uh, that was based on honor and integrity um, and courage and uh, and you know that other thing that I talked about which is we have to earn it there's no free rights but earning something does not mean that you just hammer um, stupidly at something, you know. You, you do it with finesse and you do it the right uh, type of training and you do it with the rhythms of nature and, uh, and you get yourself into the flow and uh, you can start to experience these real ecstatic states. And, uh, and that's what uh, the peak performance is about. And, uh, and that way you can get to know who you really are and that, uh, that the body and mind are synchronized and uh, we are ultimately spiritual beings here to know that we are uh, amazing. Uh, we are incredible and we have gifts and these gifts are so powerful, we have to learn how to use them correctly. And training and running and running a race is a, a really legitimate path to learn that. Yeah. Oh, thanks so much, Lorraine. Um, like incredible um, interview. Uh, so much, so much wisdom. And uh, yeah, I think so many runners will will gain so much from today. Uh, 
Do you mind just repeating again um, for those that are interested, follow up the coaching course, just your website and email again? Um, so, yeah, people can yes. uh, yeah, remember it's that. org. And uh, will you have a chance to maybe write it up there? Because Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll put people, it in the show tend notes. To get stuck on Lydiard, but it's like the girl's name, Lydia, L Y D I A. Yep. with an RD on the end, Lydiard, uh, foundation.org. Yeah, I'll, I'll, then, yeah. I'll include and then, it. Yeah, if you just uh, went on to the contact us a part of the page, it will come directly to me and I will respond. I love to hear from people. Uh, or you can write to Lorraine at lydiardfoundation.org. Fantastic. All right, thanks so much, Lorraine. Yeah, thanks, 